All right, good morning again. That's our text. If you want to open your Bible or navigate on your device to John chapter 4 and verse 43. That's what we'll put in. John 4, 43. The topic we find there, Jesus has strong words for people who seek signs. The title of our message, Scientology. Father, thank you for our time so far. Always great to worship you, Lord, to be led by the team and know, Lord, that because we're your children, you receive our worship the way any parent would receive singing from their child. At the same time, Lord, you lighten our hearts and liven us to the presence of the Holy Spirit in this place to be our teacher. And so now as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that it would accomplish all that you intend in each and every heart. Saved hearts, unsaved hearts, those, of, uh, those here maybe, Lord, who are backslidden, Lord, those here who have great need, minister to each of us, Lord, in the way that only you can. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Super rare, 100% original Texaco one-piece globe with vented top. Found in the attic of an old building in New Jersey that used to be a Texaco station. It was lying on its side on the floor. There are no cracks. If that eBay description got you excited, you are a collector of vintage signs. The rare Texaco gas pump sold for just under $17,000. I know you want to leave now and go to a garage sale. Maybe you think you can find something like that. Just go home and watch Antiques Roadshow. That's as close as you're going to get. In Provo, Utah, Sparky Sparks boasts a collection of porcelain signs on posts. He believes it's the largest of its kind in the world. We're at 217, and we have another four to put up, Sparks said. Our verses in the Gospel of John describe a different type of sign collectors. Wherever Jesus did signs and wonders, the people wanted to see more of them. It prompted the Lord to say, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Signs and wonders did not inspire saving faith in him. It got so bad that at one point Jesus said to the Pharisees and Sadducees, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Seeking signs is a sign of unbelief. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you don't need to see signs. And number two, you don't need to seek signs. Let's take a look at our need to not see signs and wonders in verses 43 through 48. Remember when George Bush said, read my lips? Now, then he went on to contradict himself, and we did have some new taxes. That's not a political moment here. I just want to say that I like the read my lips part because it got your attention, and, and he was going to tell you something that was absolutely true. Well, I'd like you to have that attitude as I begin here because we're going to talk about some things that, that, that people find controversial. But I want you to read my lips. Signs and wonders have not ceased in the church age. We are not cessationists. Believers continue to be used by God to perform signs and wonders. Miracles happen. Prophecy and tongues as gifts still edify the church when appropriately exercised. There are gifts of healing. These phenomena, however, have a different priority than they did when Jesus was on the earth. 
We'll see what that means as we work our way through the verses. So let's put in at verse 43. Now, after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. Jesus had spent two days in the Samaritan city of Sychar. He received a word of knowledge while talking to an immoral woman at Jacob's well. Stunned by his knowledge, she was saved. There were no further signs, wonders, or miracles performed in Sychar. Nevertheless, we read this earlier in the chapter. Many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. And many more believed because of his own word. And they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The word of knowledge Jesus shared was significant. But the Samaritan's testimony is that it was from hearing his plain words that they got saved. And so he did a, a sign, and it's a remarkable sign to know that this woman uh, had five previous husbands and was living with a man in sin. Uh, to know that was supernatural, and, and it drew her into conversation with Jesus, and eventually she was saved. But the majority of the Samaritans were believed not by any sign or wonder, but just by hearing the word of God. Verse 44, Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, chapter 4 began with Jesus wanting to avoid attention from the religious leaders. He retreated to the obscurity of his own hometown. You'd think that Jesus would be quite the hometown hero, but he wasn't. We read this in the Gospel of Matthew. It's in chapter 13. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters? Are they not all here with us? Where did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him, but Jesus said to them, Prophet is not without honor, except in his own country and in his own house. It's strange that Jesus' neighbors admitted to his wisdom and his works, but were nonetheless offended that he could be more than the carpenter's son who grew up in their midst. And it's wild, but, you know, maybe there's a lot of ways you could have been offended. One I was thinking of is that, you know, all of a sudden Jesus, from obscurity, was now in the mainline ministry doing miracles and wonders all over the place, and he had done nothing for 30 years in Nazareth. Uh, you know, as his hometown, uh, hadn't healed anybody, hadn't raised anybody from the dead, hadn't received a word of not. I mean, he was just absolutely like everybody else except perfect, uh, which um, I know when you're around me, I know you feel bad. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But, you know, when you're around somebody who j never makes a mistake and just seems to be perfect, uh, you know, it, that's offensive too. And so they were offended with him. And yet they had to admit that he had heavenly wisdom and supernatural works. And so uh, don't be a, uh, surprised if your family and friends see radical changes in you and are offended by them. Who do you think you are? You're my little brother or you're my, you know, whatever. And, and you're nobody. You know, you Jesus freak, that kind of thing. And family, friends, co-workers, whatever, they're, they're not all going to be super excited that you're a Christian. Uh, because it means something different to them. 
Verse 45, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had been at the feast. Now, didn't we just read that the Galileans dishonored Jesus? The word country in verse 44 means hometown. The majority in Galilee received Jesus, but not in his hometown region of Nazareth. Galileans had witnessed Jesus overturning temples and performing different signs at the recent feast in Jerusalem. They received him means they gave him hospitality. We use the word today, you know, if we talk about somebody receiving Christ, we mean they got saved. But this biblical use of it is that they received him, they brought him in, and he had hospitality among them. As we'll see, he rebukes them for their disbelief because all they're interested in is signs and wonders. Skip down to verse 48. Then Jesus said to him, this nobleman, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. That doesn't, again, another sentence that kind of sounds bad to us. Whenever I say you people, it's like that. It's, it's something pejorative. But what's happening here is that Jesus is talking to the crowd. And so to differentiate between just talking to the man and talking to the whole crowd, uh, the translators of the Bible have added in italics, you people. And, and so it's going out to everybody. And he says, unless you all see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And so people were following him and, and getting close to him because of what he could do for them. Uh, he could feed crowds, he could heal the sick, he could cast out demons. These are the first health and wealth people as far as the health and wealth gospel, wanting things from Jesus that benefited their lives. And Jesus said it wasn't a good thing. Albert Barnes writes, this was spoken not to the noblemen only, but to the Galileans generally. The Samaritans had believed without any miracle, though he had performed miracles enough to convince them Yet unless they continually saw them, the Galileans would not believe. John Gill writes and says, The Jews everywhere required signs and miracles to be wrought in confirmation of Christ being the Messiah, which indeed was right, and Christ did perform them for that purpose, but their sin of disbelief lay in this, that they wanted still more and more signs. They could not be contented with what they had seen, but required more. Adam Clark writes, the words are not addressed to the noblemen alone, but to all the Galilean Jews in general, for our Lord used the plural number, which he never does when addressing an individual. These people differed widely from the people of Sychar. They had neither a love of the truth nor a simplicity of heart and would not believe anything from heaven unless forced on their minds by the most striking miracles. Now, the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah who would come and establish the kingdom of heaven on earth would perform certain signs and wonders. That would be his calling card, his identification. That's the context in which John the Baptist would send his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the coming one or should we look for another? And so John is going to, he's gotten thrown in prison and as he's in prison, he starts to wonder what's going on with Jesus and he sends his disciples to say, hey, are you the one? And instead of Jesus just saying, yeah, I am, he answers and says, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. In other words, I am doing the signs that the Bible pr predicted that the Messiah would do when he was on the earth. So don't doubt who I am. Signs 
signify. The, the word signify is sometimes broken up by signify, meaning they point to something else. The first century signs and wonders and miracles were the signage that Jesus is who he said he was, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. You know, if you want to attract somebody to your business or something you're doing, you put a sign, yard sale over here, you know, and then you turn right and there's a car with a yard sale sign on it, and then there's a lady with a yard sale sign. And, and they signify that you're going to get to a garage with a bunch of junk. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't know why people just don't swap junk, you know, instead of have the sale, just swap their junk. And, and anyway, but, um, uh, and they signify what you're going to find there. And so Jesus said, I just did this miracle. This healing happened over here, you know, this exorcism. These are my signs, the signs that I am indeed the Messiah. Every so many years, a movement comes along scolding the church for failing because there are not enough signs and wonders and miracles breaking out all over the place. There is a place for proper encouragement to expect the supernatural. As I said, we are not cessationists. We should encourage one another in the areas of the supernatural. Seeing them, however, isn't necessary. If you were saved as an adult, was it because you saw a sign or a wonder or a miracle? Probably not. It could be. We're not discounting that. But I would guess that the vast majority of individuals in this room and in our church uh, who were saved as an adult got saved the way the um, people at Sychar did they had heard about Jesus doing miracles, but really it was just his word. And hearing that brought them to faith in him. And there's nothing wrong with that. You hear the word of God and you believe. Uh, and the, the problem with this criticism of the church, that there is not enough of this going on, we're going to see why that's true, but the criticism ultimately puts the burden on you. Because if there are not enough signs and wonders and miracles happening, it's because you don't have the faith. That's the bottom line. No matter how it's put, no matter how you arrive there, it always, that's the conclusion. The idea is that God wants to do these things. They should be happening right now. There should be miracles breaking out all over the place on this campus. And if they're not, somebody doesn't have faith because that's what the Lord wants to do. And you know what? I've told you these stories before, but I've met people who tried to commit suicide over that doctrine because they believe it. They believe that they don't have enough faith, and if you don't have enough faith, then why live? Uh, and, and so it's not just theology, it's, uh, it's life. And so don't, don't receive that. Don't have people telling you that there's not enough supernatural going on because you are failing. You might be failing, uh, you're already failing in many areas. I can't think of any area I'm succeeding in right now, but the Lord loves me still, and we have a grace message, not a condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Amen? You don't need to seek signs and wonders. A nobleman came seeking a miracle, and the Lord used it to show that we don't need to seek miracles. And so back to John 4, 46. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. The word nobleman describes a position in the civil government. His colleagues would have known his son was sick, and they would have found out later that he was miraculously healed. And as exciting as that is, 
what, uh, secondarily, God is causing the gospel to infiltrate the government. And so you've got a co-worker, and uh, it's first century, and his son is sick, and sick unto death. And he tells you he's going to go seek this miracle worker, and then his son is healed miraculously. And so that's a testimony to all of those people. Now, our civil government in California has fallen to an all-time moral low. Gavin Newsom's 2021-22 state budget is offering an incentive program for medical students who decide to become abortionists. The $20 million program will either pay off existing student loans for practicing abortionists, or they'll be offered a scholarship money for medical students who pledge to become abortionists. And so, you know, if you're a doctor or, you know, studying medicine, at some point you have to get into your specialty. Do you ever want to ask certain doctors, hey, why did you choose podiatry? What is it with feet? Is it that if your feet are good, everything else is good, you know? Or how do you become an ear, nose, and throat man? You know, like that just, wow, I'm just really, the ear fascinates me. But here, you know, the government says, hey, we'll pay your student loans or pay for you to go to school if you become an abortionist. Who wants to go to medical school to kill babies all day? And so California does. Many in the state government agree, and this is another quote, California should be a sanctuary helping out-of-state patients seek abortion. No longer the golden state, we're going to be the abortion state. He, the, California is poised to welcome everyone for an abortion. They're the sanctuary state for that. A change in government failed. A change of hearts will not. We need to pray that the gospel will infiltrate Sacramento. And this, uh, this is an interesting story. A nobleman's son was sick. Jesus miraculously heals him. They all get saved, and he goes back to the government. Somebody in our government must be sick, right? They must have a son or a daughter or someone that needs help. Maybe they'll reach out to Jesus through another believer, and maybe the Lord will use that person to infiltrate and, and to, to move. It happened in the New Testament with Paul the Apostle and those who would get saved, they go back into Herod's house and Nero's house and share their faith. And so pray for that. Verse 47, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. The nobleman is both asking for something and telling Jesus what to do. His ask, heal my son. His tell, Come with me. I may not realize it, but I sometimes ask and tell. I have my way that I think God should answer me. It's better to lay out the perceived need and submit it to the Lord. I mean, if you have to talk about your needs at all, just submit it to the Lord. I say perceived need because I don't know what I need. Uh, I think I know what I need. I know what I want, and I try and make that a need. You ever do that? I really want this, and I, you know what? I need it. And, and so you pray about it. And so, you know, we're just, we all do it. I mean, we're, because we're finite and, and we, you know, you're finding more about yourself all the time as you read the Word of God, and it's usually bad. Uh, but, you know, so be careful. It's a perceived need. I don't know what I need. Not when it comes to bringing glory to God through my life or when it involves growing in the Lord to produce fruit. Only he can map that out for me. In late 2018, I was pretty sure I did not need a degenerative neurological disease. 
It wasn't anything I was praying for. Believe me. I, you know, I didn't get up and say, Lord, you know what would really feel good right now? Parkinson's disease. I, I've seen some people with it, and I think that's a groovy way to go. And so if you're thinking cancer or something else, let's go with Parkinson's. And the, well, okay, Gene, you know, that's kind of stupid, but let's do it. Now, it was something completely that I was not praying for, but apparently I need it. And, and I'm okay with it. I'm happy with it. I'm, I don't know if I've boasted in it yet. I haven't had the chance. Oh, you think you got problems? Ah. Anyway, skip to John 4:49. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. He assumed Jesus needed to be in the proximity of his child. He didn't comprehend that Jesus could just as easily raise the dead as he could heal the sick. He acted on what he knew. Nothing for Jesus to heal you. It is nothing for Jesus to heal you. But you'll never know his sufficient grace if he always heals you. There is a depth of knowing God that can only come through suffering. A.W. Tozer writes, It is necessary for God to use the hammer, the file, and the furnace in his holy work of preparing a saint for true sainthood. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Elizabeth Elliot writes, the deepest things I have learned in my own life have come from the deepest suffering. And out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things I know about God. Job wrote, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Now my eye sees you. King Nebuchadnezzar threw Daniel's three friends into a fiery furnace. When he looked in, there was a fourth individual. It was Jesus. And as you read the story, you see that they were in no hurry to leave the furnace. They were having a great time in there. The fire didn't touch them. The heat didn't bother them. They didn't sweat. They didn't smell like smoke. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar orders them out. What a tough situation that would have been to leave Jesus in the furnace and come out and talk to Nebuchadnezzar, who you defied. But having endured that furnace, they had a testimony with the king. Nebuchadnezzar would eventually get saved, as you know. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, go your way, son, uh, your son lives, rather. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. This is the last guy you would think would believe Jesus without a sign. He was most likely not a Jew, and he had no previous contact with Jesus, just uh, some assurance that he could do a miracle. Nevertheless, his behavior left no doubt he believed he accepted what Jesus said as truth and headed home at a leisurely pace without worry or anxiety. He believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. He was saved. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. No one expected a long-distance healing. And so this just added to the excitement. Verse 52, then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. I can imagine the nobleman preaching a sermon to his household when he got back. The title, it's seven o'clock and I was with the rock. And then he launches into it. Well, you know, these guys, they're smart. Precious family and servants, yesterday at the seventh hour, 
Jesus spoke, your son lives. At that very moment, my son lived, and now my soul lives too. Who is a God like him who heals from afar? Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Will you not believe him? Will you not receive him? Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now that's all speculation on my part. But it's consistent with what happens when Jesus saves. You, you, uh, a miracle takes place in your life and in your heart, and you begin to share it with others. And ma many times others get saved as a result of that testimony, either immediately or later on. And so his whole household gets saved. Verse 54, this again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Jesus had performed many signs, two of them in Cana. The first was turning water into wine at a wedding. The second one was to avoid a wake. And so the Lord is all over the map from joy to sorrow, doing his signs and wonders. Were it not for his son's illness, this nobleman would not have come to Jesus Christ in Cana. He may not have come to hear Jesus ever. He and his household would have lived comfortably only to die in their sins eternally. In Back to the Future, Marty's improv guitar solo as he was playing Johnny Be Good doesn't exactly McFly, if you get my meaning. I was kind of happy with that one. It was out of context, and it was for a different time. Believers need to know the time or the times in which they live in order to interpret the Word of God correctly. We use the uh, outrageous example of the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant when we say, you didn't bring a lamb to church today. If we were in the Old Covenant, you would have brought a lamb for sacrifice. Under the New Covenant, covenant Jesus is the sacrificed lamb, and so we come uh, in him. And so there's a difference. You, you live differently. If, if you think we're still in that old covenant, you, you've got a lamb out in your trailer uh, and you're waiting for the sacrifice. And so you understand that there's different times and different ways of living. Here's another kind of read my lips in a good way. God never changes and the gospel is the same from Genesis through Revelation. But how believers glorify God does change during different eras of human history. The first coming of Jesus was a unique time. The God-man promised 4,000 years earlier in the third book of Genesis, third chapter rather of the book of Genesis, was on the earth. And he was offering Israel the prophesied kingdom of God on earth. We pointed out that he was doing the signs that proved he was the Messiah. Signs and wonders, healings and exorcisms were so abundant during Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry that the last words in the gospel are, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written down one by one, even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Remember years ago you used to run out of memory in your computer? That happened every few minutes. You load something up, you don't have enough memory, and you had to put CMOS and DMOS and all, you know, whatever it was that you put into your computer. Now it's just, ooh, where is it? It's in the cloud. I have unlimited storage here and here. We, my wife has 65,000 photographs on her telephone, on her iPhone, and probably three or 400,000 in the cloud. She's a cloud hog. 
But, you know, you had to worry about that kind of thing. And so John says, man, the entire world couldn't contain the signs if you wrote them down one by one. When Israel's leaders officially rejected Jesus, the kingdom of God on earth was put on hold. It's still coming because it's an unconditional promise to Israel, but it had to be put on hold. What we call the church age began. It began on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples praying there, and it continues until the resurrection and rapture of the church. The church age is another unique era in God's dealings with the human race. So let's talk about healing in the church age. There are gifts of healing. However, our experience in the church age is that very few we pray for are healed. Would you just honestly admit that? It's not a defeat. It's not a lack of faith. Most of the people we pray for to be healed are not healed. They're not healed when I pray for them. They're not healed when Franklin Graham prays for them. They're not healed when other famous Christians pray for them. There are healings, right? But very few and far between. Let's consult a biblical expert. The Apostle Paul was blessed with gifts of healing. In one strange episode, and I'm quoting, handkerchiefs and aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. And so Paul's working as a tent maker. He's wearing sweatbands, sweating, and, you know, you take them off and put them in the hazardous waste sweatband container. And somehow on the way to being burned, they were taking him out and, hey, touch this and you'll be healed. And God, God said, yeah, that's weird, but I'll do that. Sure, why not? I mean, that doesn't justify people selling their sweatbands and handkerchiefs today, right? I've gotten requests. In fact, I've got some of them just to prove, you know, that I have these miraculous handkerchiefs that have done nothing for me. But anyway, I guess they want you to lay them out on you at night or something. It's weird. That wasn't the norm. Paul taught us what is normal in the church age when he said to the church in Philippi, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Jesus not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his namesake. And so the Lord says, here's a gift. Or Paul says, your gift and, and during this time in which we live is for you to suffer for Jesus. From his inspired pen we read, Trophimus, I left in Miletus sick. Why didn't he put a sweat rag on him? Because he left him there sick. Paul described Epaphroditus being sick almost to death. Paul asked the Lord for his own healing and was not healed. The Lord answered and said, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul responded by saying, Therefore I will boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's a scene in one of the Star Trek movies, I think it's The Undiscovered Country, where uh, it's too hard to set up, but Captain Kirk, the, the, the guy says, I can take all your pain away from you. And he utters in Captain Kirk fashion, I need my pain, I want my pain. Because it made him who he was, and chills go over your body. You think, yeah, Captain Kirk, <laughs> my man. If Paul was at a miracle service, he'd say, hey, I boast in my infirmities. I'm happy about them. Don't touch me. In the church age, God is magnified and glorified in our weaknesses and our infirmities more and more often than he is in gifts of healing. 
Chapter 8 of the book of Romans, Paul gives a, another partial list of the suffering you can expect in the church age. He mentions things like tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, principalities and powers, height, depth, and any other created thing. And then he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, conquering through patient endurance. What does the apostle Peter have to say? Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We are characters in Fox's book of martyrs, not Fox's book of miracles. Pray for healing. Ask for a miracle. Believe that God permits signs and wonders. I'm not going to scoff at any of that. Desire spiritual gifts, including prophecy and the speaking in tongues. We need those exhortations. We are a supernatural people. We have God, the Holy Spirit, living in us. And we need to follow his leading and his prompting. We, we, we can't begin in the spirit and then be made perfect in the flesh. And so all of that is on the table. But don't be a collector of vintage signs as if we were living in the first century when Jesus was on the earth the first time. We live in a different era and a different time. If you want to really affect people for Christ, they need to see the common miracle of your salvation and how you exist under pressure and suffering, that God would be glorified.